You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. Today's teaching is lesson number seven from Gentle and Lowly, covering chapters 15 and 16. Evening, ladies. It's good to see you all again. So I hope you all had a good week. Um, If it was a difficult one, mine was difficult and it was crazy. Um, I pray that tonight would be refreshing though to your spirit um, as you fellowship with others and as you fellowship with the Lord tonight. Um, So as the semester moves along, I continually pray that you all would have a deeper understanding and appreciation for who Jesus Christ is. And I pray that, um, that that understanding would have a deep effect on our lives, right? That it's not just knowledge that we gain, but it's something that we put into practice in our everyday. So we're gonna pray now towards that end. Lord, you are good. You are above anything that we here on earth can understand. And for that, we are grateful. Father, I pray that as I speak tonight that I would become small so that you may become great. Give me your words to say so that these women may worship you in truth and deepen their love for you. Be glorified in our time together, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I know I've said this before, but this section is really one of my favorites. So chapter six and the topic of Jesus never casting out speaks sweetly to me because it's the one that my heart most needs to hear. But this section was exciting for me to prepare for because I got to dig deep into the Old Testament, which I love. So as we look at the Old Testament, if we just give it a cursory glance, it's easy to paint God with broad strokes and see him as full of wrath and anger and judgment. And I'm sure we've all heard the sentiment, and maybe we've even said this ourselves, that I prefer the God of the Old Testament, or I prefer the God of the New Testament to the God of the Old Testament. But I've been saying it all semester, Bev has been saying it, we know that the Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So there is no God of the Old Testament or God of the New Testament, right? Jesus did not give us fundamentally new content, right? As Ortland puts it, he continued on the natural trajectory of what God revealed about himself throughout the entire Old Testament. And it says itself in scripture that the Lord our God is one. So if we truly read and get into the nitty gritty of scripture, we see that God, even before Jesus steps foot on earth as God incarnate, that God longs to and actually does countless times pour out his mercy on his people. In the Old Testament, as we follow the journey of the Israelites from Egypt to the promised land and then into exile, the entire time, the Lord wants nothing more than for them to come to him. Remember we talked about in week three that that is our job and the catalyst to receive his mercy. The Lord wants the Israelites to come back to him so that he can forgive them and redeem them. So before we really jump into what I wanna focus on tonight and get into the chapters, um, I think we have to discuss what Orland addresses in chapter 15 at the beginning about the sovereignty of God. So we focused a lot on Lamentations 3.33 as he talked about in the video, and it says that the Lord does not afflict from his heart. But like Orland so delicately points out, that does mean that he afflicts. This is a hard pill to swallow, and I'll be the first to admit that it doesn't give me warm and fuzzy feelings but we have to deal with the struggles that we sometimes have to trust God in his sovereignty and not just ignore them because we're worried that it might damage our faith or worse, um, because we're trying to make God seem more appealing to ourselves or more appealing to others. When we water down the Lord's power, we are building the idol in the same way that the Israelites did in the desert. 
If we ignore any possible misgivings or doubts that we have about the sovereignty of God, we're not protecting our faith or the Lord. We're actually building our faith on a shaky foundation because those doubts will build up and fester and we'll be serving a God of our own making. Then when life hits us with its hardest blows, we will be like the man that built his house on the sand. We'll crumble because we didn't come to a place where we could fully trust the Lord despite our circumstances. If we harbor qualms about the sovereignty of God and we have a split allegiance between him and something of this world, like our safety or our health or comfort, James chapter one tells us that we're like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, unstable in all of our ways. So this is not to say that we can't ever question the Lord or um, that we always have to be happy with our lives, right? We can struggle with the way that he is allowing things to turn out, with us, turn out for us. That's part of our human nature. But what it does mean is that if we're gonna be true followers of Christ, if we're gonna lay down our lives to follow him, then we have to trust in his goodness and his ways, even if we don't understand them or like them. So friends, let me assure you, we can trust and rest in the sovereignty of God because of the goodness of God. He does not afflict from his heart. Ortland phrases it this way on page 138. In regards to Israel, God's deepest heart is their merciful restoration. Sometimes that restoration requires punishment for sin, but it always comes from the goodness of God and his desire to restore us to him and to holiness. We will never be able to accept the sovereignty of God till we believe this with our whole hearts. And I don't know about you, but I like evidence before I believe something. And evidence is what we're gonna hopefully provide you with tonight. So while I know that it's impossible to solve all of your doubts surrounding the Lord's sovereignty in just a single, single evening, we're gonna move on to the rest of chapter 15 and 16. But if you're struggling with this idea of God's sovereignty, please feel free to reach out to your table leaders, to myself, any of the other leaders of WBF, we would love to sit with you and help talk you through it. So we spent last week looking specifically at the different members of the Trinity, and we're gonna to continue to talk about the Father tonight and the unity of the Trinity. But first, I want us to think about our earthly parents. So many of us in this room are parents, and any parent will tell you that each season of childhood, there are specific challenges and methods of parenting and discipline that work well as compared to other seasons. So for instance, I can sit down and have a conversation with my six-year-old about how his words and his actions are being disrespectful, and he can understand those terms. And sometimes when the spirit is at work in him, he can adjust his behavior accordingly. However, when my one-year-old throws a colossal fit because I took the pen away that she was sucking on, um, that method is not so effective. <laughs> um, I can't discipline her in the same way that I do my older children. And I have learned in my years of parenting how to dis discipline my children according to their needs. It's a hard job, and I do it out of love, knowing that these years are formative, and without discipline, my children would be awful human beings. <laughs> So I hope that you're starting to see the analogy that I'm building, but to go a little further into this point, let me tell you a story. So earlier this week, we had a really rough night with my son. He was fighting me with all he had because he did not want to brush his teeth. So as we were literally locked in the bathroom together, he asked why I didn't love him. He said that at that moment, it didn't feel like I loved him. I had to explain to him that love doesn't always look like getting what he wants. And discipline doesn't always feel good. And sometimes when mom loves him, it means disciplining him. But I don't discipline him because it's fun for me. It's actually the opposite. I hate disciplining him. It's tiring and exhausting. But I know that it's what he needs in this season. 
Just as we have wisdom as to how to discipline well, and we know the purpose it serves, so does our Heavenly Father, and that much more than we do. He knows how to parent well and how to discipline well. Sometimes, just like my son, it doesn't feel like we're being loved in that moment, but as we read in these chapters, we can trust that our Heavenly Father is not getting joy out of our affliction. Orlin quotes Goodwin um, and says some things himself about this on pages 138 and 139. Ortland puts it this way. The Lord is not reluctant about the ultimate good that is gonna be brought about through pain. That is why he's doing it. But something recoils within him in sending that affliction. Goodwin similarly states, when God exercises acts of justice, it is for a higher end. It is not simply for the thing itself. There's always something in his heart against it. Our Heavenly Father knows exactly how to deal with our waywardness. And just like our earthly parenting, sometimes that means loving discipline. But just as we do not enjoy disciplining our children, neither does the Father enjoy disciplining us. I love the way that Ortland categorizes God's work as judgment and wrath being his strange work and mercy being his natural work. Mercy gushes out of his innermost being and he wants to lavish it on us. In Psalm 23, 6, David wrote, mercy and goodness shall follow me all the days of my life. And in Psalm 40, he writes, as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. When we walk with the Lord, mercy follows us. He does not hold it back from us. It's what we live and breathe every day as the gospel falls fresh on our depravity. So we're gonna look at more Old Testament passages to see further proof of the Lord's unending mercy, but first, I wanna prevent any misconceptions about what these chapters are saying. We've been spending our weeks looking at how Jesus is gentle and lowly, and now how those qualities are also true of the Father. But what we can't lose in this study is the truth that God is infinitely all things. Infinitely merciful and also infinitely just. We talked in week five about how Jesus's compassion and anger are not at odds with one another, um, but that they rise and fall in tandem. And so it is with the Lord's justice and mercy. Sin requires justice. It deserves punishment. For the Lord to not bring wrath upon those who sin and don't repent would create a system of anarchy. And our God is a God of order. His mercy and justice are beautifully intertwined in a way that we can't fully comprehend with our finite minds. But we see evidence in scripture that even when he justly invokes his wrath, he is merciful to either save a remnant, like we see in the flood with Noah, with Joshua and Caleb entering the promised land, with the group of Israelites returning from exile, and countless others. Or we see his mercy and how affliction brought on by his wrath causes people to repent and turn to him again. Mercy is his natural work. But to quote Ortland, God is complex enough to make decisions both of judgment and mercy out of his heart. So in your homework, we had you look up several passages in the Old Testament that supported the concept of mercy as God's natural work. And I want to refer to them again here tonight, just in case you didn't get a chance to do your homework. And if you did, let this serve as a good reminder. First, you looked at Jeremiah 32, 37 through 41. Verse 37 tells us that it was indeed the Lord who drove the Israelites out of their country in anger and wrath. The Israelites were not cleared of their guilt and sin, but the Lord's anger was brief and is followed by promises of his love and devotion to them. In verse 41, the Lord explicitly states, I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Goodness flows from his heart and his soul. The Hebrew word for heart here refers to the inner man and soul corresponds to passion and desire. So from his inmost being, his passion and desire is to bring good to his people. 
In Ezekiel 18.32, the Lord tells us himself, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. God does not delight in enacting judgment and wrath. They are tools to bring about the good that he desires and to punish the sin that he truly hates. This statement comes at the end of a passage where the Lord is beseeching the Israelites to turn from their wickedness and choose life in him. He promises in verse 22 that he won't remember any of the transgressions of the people if they only turn away from their sins. He wants us to repent and turn to him so that he can lavish his love on us. Ortland states it simply at the end of chapter 15. For God to be merciful is for God to be God. So there are a million more examples of this, but I wanna look at just one more. One at the very beginning. In Genesis 3, after Eve ate the fruit and sin stained the good world that the Lord had created, he came looking for them. God was as omniscient then as he is now, so he already knew what had happened, but he didn't storm into the garden, laying down punishments, or worse, destroying Adam and Eve, which he would have had every right to do for the sin that they had brought about. Instead, he called out to them. He met sin with an opportunity for mercy. Sin bred brokenness, and God in his justice did not allow it to go unpunished, but even in his punishments, the Lord showed mercy. In his desire to save his people from never-ending life in the presence of sin, the Lord mercifully, mercifully kept them from eating of the tree of life. In his mercy, the Lord sacrificed an animal to clothe his people and cover their shame. Mercy after mercy after mercy. What I want you to take away from this is that from the very beginning, the Lord has met humankind with the offer of mercy. Over and over again, it pours out of him. In chapter 16, we turn to look at Exodus um, in the way in which the Lord's autobiography, if you will, speaks to this concept of mercy being most natural to him. Exodus 34, six through seven is, as Ortland mentioned, the pinnacle of divine revelation in the Old Testament. And what were the first two descriptions out of the Lord's mouth? Merciful and gracious. As I read this section of the book, I couldn't help but notice the contrast and descriptions in these verses and in others that Orland mentions. I put them in bold on the slides um, so that you can see them clearly. Notice that when the Lord speaks of his judgment of sin, it goes to the third and fourth generation. But he abounds, um, but his steadfast love goes to the thousandth. He is just, not clearing the guilty, but he abounds in love and faithfulness. Similarly, in Isaiah 54, seven through eight, the Lord's desertion of Israel is brief, but his compassion is great. His anger lasts only a moment, but his love is everlasting. Don't let the significance of these adjectives be lost on you. When the Lord describes himself or is described by his people, his mercy is at the forefront. This is the truth of who God really is. On page 151, Orlin notes that sin causes us to believe the darkest things about God. For many of us, it may seem impossible that God's goodness exists amidst his wrath. But let the gospel fall afresh on you tonight, friends. The Lord is good and his mercies are new every morning. So as I've mentioned before, I'm a French teacher, so it's no surprise that I love language. Writing it or reading it in all forms, words fascinate me. Painting pictures with my own words is one of my favorite thing, things, but reading others' words is even better. You'll find me on my summer vacations with my nose in a book 99% of the time. A good story can capture my attention as the details bring characters to life and create a whole world in my mind of people and places and feelings. Words are powerful, but at the end of the day, there is an emptiness to them. We have to create meaning from them and assign value to them. But God being merciful and good aren't just words. John 1.1 tells us that in the beginning was the word, 
But then in verse 14, the word ceases to just be a word. It becomes flesh, real. It can be felt and seen and heard. The Lord took abstraction and made it concrete. The idea and concept of his goodness and mercy became tangible in Jesus Christ, the exact imprint of the Father walking around on earth. No longer do we need words from prophets or stories passed down through generations to tell us about God. Now the real thing was living and breathing in our midst. Emmanuel, God with us. As Orland states, Jesus came to do in flesh and blood what God had done only in wind and voice in the Old Testament. Shadow became substance as God became incarnate. And when we read the gospels, what leaps off the page? Goodness, mercy, justice, compassion and love, these are the things that define our Lord, Father, Son, and Spirit. May the Lord's mercy and goodness shine on you tonight as they shone on Moses, and may you leave here radiating the sweet mercy of the Lord to those around you. You can move into your table discussion time.